Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week, we have returning Phoebe Watson. Hello! And we're very excited to have you back. We are well into Lent at this point, and very much. Uh, we're enjoying all of our Lenten resolutions. I don't know, is there a term for it? Resolutions? I don't think enjoying is a good term either. <laughs> Enduring? Yeah, that's definitely it. But we thought we would do a somewhat Lenten themed episode, and we're actually going to follow on from something that was brought up in the last week's episode with Matthias on making Catholicism weird again, which is. Catholics focus on the crucifix and the crucified form of Jesus and how that is such a central image to the Catholic expression of faith. We thought we'd have a bit of a discussion about why we have such a central role to the crucified figure of Christ and what it means and why we portray it in such often such a graphic or a, a realistic kind of way. Yeah and then the, how that ties into I guess our own understanding of the cross and our relationship with God. Yes, and our relationship with God and our understanding of the salvation of humanity. Yeah. And I think it's very fitting for Lent. I think one of the best things to do for Lent is obviously the Stations of the Cross, but another really beautiful practice is to just meditate on the cross itself and uh, spend some time because in Lent you are really preparing for Good Friday, I feel like, and then Easter comes as that wonderful surprise. It's that Tolkien new catastrophe that really what we're building towards is the crucifixion, and then suddenly we have the resurrection, which is, I think, a really beautiful thing. Yeah, we're not building towards Easter. Yeah, in some ways, yeah, we're, we are, but we're not. We're emptying ourselves through Lent, yeah. which we are then allowing ourselves to be filled with Christ in the resurrection. Absolutely. But yeah, there is that sense that first comes Good Friday. We're building up to the ultimate emptiness of Good mm -hmm. Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. I think it, in some ways, as someone who grew up Catholic and in quite a Catholic country, I hadn't actually quite realised how specifically Catholic the figure of the crucified Christ is, uh, or how divisive it could be. And so to start us off, I thought I'd have a quote which just sort of places it in context. This is from an article called Why Does the Cross Attract Us? Um, by Father Hugh Barber from Catholic Answers. And he says, Mormons and Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses find this image offensive. And yet we who profess the faith revealed by the crucified one find this image attractive, alluring and altogether consoling. And I think that's a really good starting point for us because it's all of those things. It's it's attractive. We're going to talk about how even when it's grotesque and unsettling, the cross is still beautiful. And we're also going to talk about how it's alluring in that it draws people towards it. And in drawing people towards the cross, it is also consoling. So I think those kind of three descriptions are, are kind of key to what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, we're also cycling back to a conversation which we had more than five years ago, um, which you don't even remember, I apparently. Haven't, Phoebe says she's going to quote me now, and I'm utterly terrified. I have no memory of this conversation. It's that bit in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is in the Mines of Moria, and they get to that place where there's two options, and he says, I have no memory of this place. <laughs> Hopefully I'll remember it when you quote me, but I'm very anxious to see what this is. Well, you won't be able to correct me because I'm the one who remembers it. <laughs> but this is when I'm still Anglican. And I guess coming back into that, growing up as a Protestant, the image that we use a lot is the empty cross. Mm -hmm. I can only remember a few occasions of seeing depictions of the of Christ on the cross within the church context mm -hmm. there. I'd have seen it in school and... Mm -hmm. other places. I just remember asking you why Catholics used the crucifix so much because to me the empty cross was a sign of hope because the cross was empty Christ was risen and the salvific work was done and you turned around and said but the cross is what we're called to live. Wow that's quite a good quote I'm very pleased with myself well done Rachel five years ago um, yeah, in many ways, this topic is a conversation that Phoebe and I have been having, like she said, for five years. And before the podcast was even a twinkle in my eye, we had discussed 
how much we'd like to talk about this and how this is a topic that we actually feel quite strongly about because surprise surprise Phoebe has somewhat changed her view on it since converting to Catholicism. <laughs> well I think I never was averse to the image yeah but I didn't feel the same lure to it mm -hmm. and that comes from a lack of understanding of what the passion of Christ means. Yeah. And I said I was going to go into this later, but I guess I'm going to go into it now. In that, as a Protestant, there's a lot of focus on the death of Christ and and the resurrection, always tied together. And that being how we're saved, which mm -hmm. is obviously is very much true. But there is a subtle difference in that a lot of Protestants believe something which we call substitutionalism, which is Christ dying as a substitute for our sins, yeah. like the um, sacrificial lamb, the scapegoat. It's a kind of pouring out of all our sins on Christ. And even, I think I mentioned this to you, an image of like pinning your sins to the cross. It's usually an empty cross. Yeah. And then being pinned there so that you could walk away. Whereas the Catholic understanding, partly because we have the Mass, which links us back to the crucifixion of Christ and makes us present there, means that with Christ on the cross, we come present before the actual crucifixion. And because we can come present to that in the Mass, the image of the crucifixion then allows us to recall that and in some ways to unite ourselves with his passion. And therefore we believe more in a representational sacrifice, that Christ death is representational of the whole human race, that our salvation comes through our unity then with the cross. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Protestant view, the like, evangelical I should say, because there's a lot of different Protestant views and you yes. can't really pin them down. The classic evangelical view is more about accepting that salvation mm -hmm. and kind of ties into the Calvinistic predestination a little bit as well. Ours is to do with the suffering of Christ and not only uniting ourselves to that suffering, but being present there in time. Yeah. And it wasn't until, as a Catholic, I was trying to meditate on the cross. It was such a difficult thing, because I wasn't used to it. Like, yeah. the actual passion of Christ came up, like, once a year, twice a year. Whereas when I started praying the rosary, twice a week. Yeah, it's really, <laughs> it's in there, yeah. It's in there. And it was through coming there with Mary, mm -hmm. and almost being under her mantle and being brought to the foot of the cross with her, but never alone there. I um, think that's really beautiful. I think it's one of those things that it's very hard to explain from the outside why yeah. looking at a, a cross with Jesus on it can be, like we said, consoling. But I think that is the real, the crux of the matter is to, to understand, because everything about that whole section of the Christ narrative is about confounding expectations like he's supposed to be Christ victorious and here he is being crucified and it, it's so deeply bedded in with the words we use like even the word I understand I know that the word passion meant something slightly different to the way that we use it now but even still it's it feels like a very positive word to connote something so devastating and the same with and people always make fun of us and say like why do you call it good friday when he dies on that day and you're like that is the whole point <laughs> it's a terrible day where the best good was done there there is that thing where we take something that looks awful and we say well that's good and in the same way we take the cross and look at it and say that that's beautiful yeah there's and an incredible um Bishop Robert Barron quote, I can't reference the video, so I'm just going to have to paraphrase, but it's, he's talking about how we hold up the crucified Christ as a taunt to the world mm -hmm. of, this is our God, look at what we did to him, yeah, we're going to hold that, like, that should be our most shameful image, mm -hmm. we're going to plaster that all over our churches. Yeah, and that is um, a sign of triumph. Yeah. And I think it's really telling that there's a quote from... It's John 12, 31 to 33, which says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this, indicating the kind of death he would die. And I think it's very fitting that that also indicates the way that when the cross is lifted up, when the crucifix is lifted up, that it draws the whole world towards him. Mm. 
And so, and it's when I am, so it's when Christ is on the cross, not just when the cross is lifted up, when the crucifixion is lifted up. There, there is a kind of attraction in that. Some people kind of question, why would you show God in such ugliness? Like if, if you revere him, why would you focus on the lowest part? Or why would you depict him in the most shameful way? That I think there can be a sense of confusion around why we would choose of all the images of Christ. Like you don't see people wearing necklaces with like the resurrected Jesus in the tomb. Why is this the defining picture of Jesus? And I think it's because of the Catholic and the Christian understanding of what was accomplished on the cross. Yeah, it's like because this is our salvation. Mm-hmm. This is the triumph of God in the very worldly defeat, and which is his offering of his entire self to the Father. And St. Augustine has um, quite a few quotes on this. I think they're all from the same sermon. I could be wrong. Uh, the first one that I'm going to quote is, uh, he says, The deformity of Christ forms you. If he had not willed to be deformed, you would not have recovered the form which you had lost. Therefore he was deformed when he hung on the cross. But his deformity is our comeliness. In this life, therefore, let us hold fast to the deformed Christ. We bear the sign of this ugliness on our foreheads. Let us not be ashamed at Christ's ugliness. Which is very fitting for Lent because we put the ashes on our foreheads. And so there is this willingness to embrace that we needed salvation. I think that's yeah. that's the key, which is that the sacrifice was necessary and that he didn't just die. He didn't die of old age. He didn't just die and then conquer death. That yeah. this passion of the Christ and this ugliness and this torment and this torture was part of the salvation and that it was necessary to take on all of the guilt in the world and to bear it up, like you said, as a representation to God. Yeah, that Christ didn't just die, but died in the most terrific manner. Mm -hmm. That God became incarnate is such a mystery in itself. Mm -hmm. But then to choose that form of death. And then I did a wonderful talk about eternity a couple of nights ago by Spiritual Batteries. Check out their podcast. But he was talking about the eternity of God. And I'd heard the phrase of... Christ crucified being eternally present to the Father mm-hmm. because of the eternity of God. But that's when it really struck home to me. That is a con- now a continuous reality throughout time, beyond time, that because God is both eternal and then chose to enter our time, all of the time of Christ, all of the life of Christ in his humanity is then embedded in the eternity of God in a very particular way. Yeah. So that all of that humanity, from his being in Mary's womb, all the way through to him dying on the cross, is present before the Father, and is part of God. Which is why then we can look at Christ on the crucifix and be drawn back to the crucifixion. Because God breaks into our time, where like to meet us wherever we are. Wherever you meet God, you meet Christ crucified. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. And yeah, that conception of eternity is so, it's difficult to get your head around. But I think that's why we have to develop an ability to approach the crucified Christ, because that's the Christ that we will meet. We will also meet the resurrected Christ. And the infant Christ. Yes, but we will meet the crucified Christ, and there is no escaping that. And I think I was saying to Phoebe also, the thing that I find interesting about these depictions is that they really drive home the human nature of Christ, that both and of his divine nature and his human nature, that he wasn't just a good being that phased into existence and told some good stories and then phased out again, that he was a real person with a real body. There was another article, this one was actually on the Word on Fire, called uh, A Song for the Suffering Body of Christ. And he said, the many Christian denominations hang corpse-less crosses in their sanctuaries. They worship around an empty cross so that their faith is always focused on the hope of the resurrected Christ rather than on the tragic necessity of his suffering and death. And I get that. It makes sense. But I've come to realise, far more often than not, the body of Christ, that is the church, as a human institution, looks more like the suffering body of Christ. It's filthy. It's covered in blood, scars, sweat and dirt. Its skin is scourged, stained by the sins of its members. And I think in some ways that hope is what sustains us and the hope for the resurrection is what sustains us. But the reality is many of us live 
at least interiorly, like there's a, a huge amount of suffering and hardship to bear in life. And that I have always found a deep consolation in looking at the cross and said, somebody has walked this path, not only before me, but with me. And that the cross is a sign that God is willing to take on these these sufferings. And so that in its own way helps me bear my own and offer it towards Christ as part of a greater movement towards God. Yeah, that it gives an entire purpose to our suffering. Yes. Um, and so I think that kind of covers why we have crucifixes and why they're important and why we're not afraid to have them. But I think we're going to take a little bit more time to look at them almost from an aesthetic point of view, like why would you use this as a kind of piece of art and how that works and why that we consider that to be a holy and a beautiful thing. Because I think that's, in the previous podcast when we were talking about that, that's the thing that we were discussing in terms of like the juxtaposition of these beautiful churches with their marble and their gold and all of those things and then these these crucified Christs and why that is an act of worship. Yeah, like I had a wonderful um, St. John of God quote that said, there is no higher contemplation than that of the passion of Christ. That's very good and very fitting. But I think the first thing, because we would say that the cross is beautiful and obviously that, that doesn't look immediately apparent to anyone who just glances up at it. But I think the first thing that we should do is explain how beauty works and why it makes sense for us to call it beautiful and in the same way call, call it good, as in Good Friday. So that article that I mentioned earlier, the cross must be deeply ugly to be beautiful. He talks about what beauty is and beauty expresses the truth of some form. So I think we've talked in other episodes where there's like three paths to God, truth, beauty and goodness. And they're the human paths that we take towards God. And that, or rather what the human soul is automatically drawn to. Yeah, exactly. And so the cross is an expression of the truth of God's love. The article says it reveals the nature of God to us in an unmatched degree. And then second, they say beauty gives rise to contemplation and encounter with a particularly beautiful object. Because it brings about our union with God, the cross enables us to encounter God in the person of Christ. Moreover, Christ's sublime act of sacrifice moves us to wonder and contemplation. Finally, beauty wounds and moves us profoundly, giving us a knowledge deeper than rational inquiry and calibrates our hearts to receive the truth. And I think that is true. And I think that the way that we approach the cross if we were in Jerusalem at that time, I'm sure we'd have turned away from it and been horrified because that is our human nature and our human weakness, especially given that we have so much distance. As you said, the cross is eternally present, but we're not always present to receive that reality. And so by traversing that distance, by making it real in front of you really helps and that it does allow us to contemplate it. Like most of the time when you see something ugly, you want to turn away. But in this case, and I think we've seen in all of our lives in other circumstances when something looks very ugly, but it's maybe someone who's sick, but is making an effort to see you. Or there's all these kind of things that may at first glance not seem beautiful, but when you know the intention behind them, they have their own beauty and they have their own sense of like wonder and awe. And the fact that it that allows you to reflect on it and, and draw yourself deeper into contemplation. I think if we see a pile of rubbish on the street, no one's kind of like staring at it in wonder and awe or in contemplation. You might stare at it in disgust and dismay, but... I mean, even if you think about a young baby, mm -hmm. they look very odd. Yeah, <laughs> that is true, yeah. And that there's so many things that we consider to be beautiful that are beautiful because they are truly beautiful because we do talk about an objective beauty and this is not to say that oh it's only about your perspective on something but they are beautiful because they express a truth and if that truth is love then of course it will be beautiful yeah and so that's one of the the ways that we have of accessing the the truth of god's reality and his love for us and the extent of his love for us. I think that's what I always think about when I look at the cross is the extent of his love for us, how far he goes, how boundless his love is and how how much he wants to draw us to him. Yeah, it's an expression of infinite love. And it I also can't remember whose quote this was, but it was how can a god who loves you infinitely love you more? That's beautiful. But also our human perspective would be to say, if you want everyone to love you, appear with a lot of majesty and pomp and, and be charismatic and, and obviously... Be outwardly beautiful. Yes. And, like, you know, celebrities and 
famous people and movie stars and models and things like that. But that's always, in a way, the love of an inferior coming to a higher. And of course we're inferior coming towards God, but God loves us so much he'll go so far as to approach us in a form that's lower than we perceive ourselves to be. Wow, that's a great description. Oh, thank you. But yeah, I just, I, I love that. And there's so many, there's, uh, Balthazar has some really, really great quotes on this. So this is, I believe from his, he has a book, which is a year of reflection. So there's a different reflections for all of the seasons. I don't think it's for all of the months, but it's at least for all of the seasons. And it's called You Crown the Year with Your Glory. Oh no, I'm sorry. This is from, he has a book called Love Alone is Credible is a great name for a book. Of course the cross is not just a display of moral and aesthetic ugliness. It is the moment in which the full beauty of God's love is most deeply revealed in its victory over that ugliness. Christ not only reveals our sin to us, but purifies human nature in offering it back to his Father. I, I think Balthazar does a really great job of this. But I am actually going to put forward another quote, which is from You Crown the Year with Your Glory. And that's one that I think we also have to take a slightly different view of. So he talks about the guilt. And I think there's such a pervasive idea of Catholic guilt and how we have to feel guilty about things all the time. Ah, that good old Catholic guilt. Precisely. Um, which is not entirely accurate. And so this particular sermon was called The Scapegoat and the Trinity. And he says, for the believer, the answer is easy. The crucial thing is not that this is an instance of our wanting to rid ourselves of guilt. Naturally, no one wants to admit guilt. Pilate washes his hands and declares himself guiltless. The Jews hide behind their law, which requires them to condemn a blasphemer. They act in a pious and God-fearing way. Judas himself has remorse for his deed. He brings the blood money back and, when no one will take it from him, throws it at the high priests. No one is prepared to accept responsibility, but precisely by attempting to extricate themselves, they are convinced by God that they are guilty of the death of this innocent man. But the crucial thing is that there is someone who is both ready and able to take their guilt upon himself. A lot of people think of Christ on the crucifix as just making you feel bad, and is it about that? Is it not? Yeah, it's it's definitely not about finger-wagging. Yeah. There is definitely something about the cross which calls you to convert your life because in taking on the sins of the world if you love someone you will try and ease their burden and in some ways you ease Christ's burden by not sinning <laughs> not that we can take away from the burden of Christ but that he is calling us to this and to give up sin and to walk with him in goodness and so the cross should call you to that but yes yeah, the, the cross should call you to repentance yes so it shouldn't be a kind of a burden of guilt yeah because it's Christ who takes on yeah. the guilt of the world not you yeah. And that's the beauty of confession is that you can repent and leave that sin there. That's not your sin to carry for the rest of your life. If you don't understand the cross in terms of the mercy and the forgiveness of God, particularly within the sacrament of confession, I can totally see how it becomes an almost overburdening sense of guilt. You look at this person and you say, you did this, you nailed him to the cross, you're a terrible person. And particularly even in terms of the love of a father. Yeah. That, does a child feel guilty for their parent having to take on something else, mm -hmm. even if it was a child's fault. Yeah. Maybe a little bit, but then they're called to repent of what they did for that mm -hmm. and love their parent more, not spend ages agonising over their parent having to take that on. Yeah, and in that way, the cross should be a form, like we said, of consolation. Yeah. So you have something to be consoled about, which is that there is a brokenness in our humanity and a tendency towards sin and towards suffering, but that you receive consolation from the cross, that it's not the place of your guilt, it's the place of your consolation. But I think it's interesting still to pull out that idea that it's only by accepting it, pick up your cross. You know, that's what God asks us to do, pick up your cross. He's not asking us to find a way out. I wash my hands of this. Oh, technically I was only doing this. That it's not about extricating yourself from the guilt. It's about accepting and moving with Christ and carrying with him and standing at the foot of the cross and looking up with him in love that unites yourself to, to Christ and towards our salvation. It's about a sense of duty, like you said, in the way that you would to a parent, that you wouldn't willfully cause your parents suffering, that you do have a, a kind of care of duty towards them that says, I will not conduct my life in a way that hurts you. And that 
God constantly offers us this opportunity to repent. The cross is an act of love, not an act of perseverance or in the sense that I, you can just keep piling this up on me and I'll take it. That it is actually asking us to, to be a part of it and to love him through it. Yeah, and then like you're saying, asking us to walk with Christ mm -hmm. through that. And then also the consolation of knowing that he has suffered, that he suffers with us. Yeah. I think that's probably the greatest consolation. Which is essentially why we have this viscerality to it. I, I was saying earlier about the incarnation, and there was actually something I wanted to quote earlier, but it does tie in with how these images portray a reality to us. Yeah, and it is a really difficult thing to grapple with, mm -hmm. in that there's a reason why Christ on the cross is consolation, mm -hmm. but any other form of crucifix is just sheer abhorrence. We were talking about this. Yeah. When is it blasphemous uh, to portray an ugly crucifix and when is it not? And I think this is a really interesting question because obviously from the outside, that's a really confusing question. Why would you say that it's perfectly acceptable for you to do a really gruesome cross? And I think we're talking about gruesome crosses. When I was researching this, I did come across, I think they're called Spanish crosses. And like there was one in which he looked like he was wearing like almost seaweed all over himself, except it was blood, like he'd been flayed that badly that there was just strips of flesh everywhere. And even, I, I'm not particularly squeamish, but I was like, I don't really know how long I could sit in contemplation of this. I'm quite glad you didn't show me that one. <laughs> yeah, and so I think there is a balance. I'm not saying that certainly from its own tradition, and that's just not something that I really understand. I wouldn't say it's blasphemous, but I would say it's a little hard to approach. But, you know, some of my favourite crosses show the scourging marks and the blood dripping from his hands, and they're all quite intense. And so why would you say that that's an act of worship, but putting, even say, Jesus in a branded, I don't know, Adidas or Nike t-shirt, or taking something... Ugh taking something that from that and then like juxtaposing it with maybe something kind of modern or pop culture or we were saying I've seen pictures of a, a woman on the cross um, in the place of Jesus and why we can say that one is acceptable and one is not and we were talking about how it's about a tenderness and a love towards Christ and our intention to love and encounter God and encounter what he did for us and so I suppose it's also that strange way of you wouldn't display the tortured body of, of anyone else you loved in yeah. any way. Yeah, exactly. You'd have but a that closed would be casket. A treasured thing that you would reserve for their dignity. But Christ has abandoned his dignity to us. And so to commercialize or to mutate that in any way is again, another form of the mocking. So you have the mocking earlier. And so anything that is essentially designed at least some way to mock that is another thing that Christ is carrying on the cross that we would see what he did and say, oh, I can make a funny image out of this or I can make a smart aleck point that even when we're displaying him in this shameful way, we're approaching him with reverence and that when we abandon that reverence, that's when it becomes blasphemous. In, in their defence, I do understand why that's quite a complicated idea to wrap your head around. It's kind of unfortunate that it produces the t kind of image that we find almost the most abhorrent. It, also because it's such a common image, particularly mm -hmm. maybe in Ireland, for people to be familiar with. So then it's just an image. Yeah, and it's become so passé. Like, nobody passes any comment on it. And if they do, it's to point out, actually, did you know that this was a really horrific thing to be putting on classroom walls? I think I mentioned that in the last podcast. To be putting in hospital wards, like, how dare you? How can you not see that this is disgusting to have in front of people all the time? And in a way, we have kind of lost that sense yeah. that it is disgusting. Which is why I think maybe us talking about the ugly crucifixes, like the really dramatic ones, mm -hmm. they stand out to us because they bring back what they were supposed to show in the first place, which was that sheer torture and shame and twistedness that Christ endured for us. But now we've become so desensitised to that image that it takes a, like, one of my favourite ones is where his fingers are all, like, out of place almost, and you can see his ribs all sucked in, that he, how difficult it is to breathe, and it just kind of brings you into that yeah. moment of grappling with the horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I 
have this quote. It's from an article which is The Serious Sacrificial Body and it's by Timothy O'Malley and it's on Church Life Journal. Actually, I would recommend at one year they did, I think it was pretty recently, they did a whole series of articles on this topic of the body of Christ and, and they're all linked. So if you find this one and you scroll to the bottom, you'll be able to see that they're all linked. But he's he says, Jesus' death on the cross, his sacrifice does not just communicate a series of general principles. We must love unto the end. We must stand with those who are oppressed, etc. Rather, through taking on the most horrific of deaths, experiencing radical abandonment, Jesus makes it possible for our very real deaths to become a communion with God. Like Christ, we do not die in an abstract manner. Our bodies ooze and bleed. Our breathing slows as, as we grasp for breath. Our bodies die, precisely because Christ took on the two things that all human beings experience at every age, death and life. Then every person may be saved. And there was also an, another really interesting point that this was in the first article that I referenced from Church Life Journal, which is the cross must be deeply ugly to be beautiful, that even an ugly cross is still a tempered version of reality. And they link that to the experience of the Eucharist. So he says, because the cross is horrible, we need to temper its horror in order to receive its truth. We see something similar in the Eucharist. In his treaty on the sacraments, Ambrose writes that we eat a likeness of the dead body of Christ and drink a likeness of the precious blood so that there might be no horror at the gore and so that the price of redemption might prove efficacious. He later adds that we receive the sacraments under a likeness so that the grace of redemption can work. Later medieval authors quote these sentences repeatedly in Eucharistic treaties when they seek to explain why the Eucharist still looks like bread and wine even after it has changed into the body and blood of Christ. If beauty wounds us and draws us in, ugliness repels us, which means that at some point we will have to temper the ugliness of the cross in order to receive the beauty that might be there. The spirit of love cannot teach the cross to the world in any other way than by disclosing the full depths of the guilt that the world bears, a guilt that comes to light on the cross and is the only thing that makes the cross intelligible. Indeed, it is the God-forsakenness of the crucified one that we come to see what we have been redeemed and saved from. The definitive loss of God, a loss we could have never spared ourselves through any efforts of our own outside of grace. Yeah, I was also thinking about veiling the gore. Mm -hmm. I think we were talking about this a while ago, about the loincloth or the veil that yeah. Christ always depicted with, and how we know that they stripped him of his garments. Mm. But that we still veil him in that way? Yeah, that he veiled for our sake, not for his. Yeah. It's not for his dignity, but for the, our sake and the sake of our contemplation. That's really important because I think in our human nature that seeing the reality of it would almost be distracting or it would... We need to see it in an artistic form. Even when we see the goriness of Christ, it's done by incredible artists who know what they're doing. And so it's presented to us in an artistic way, even when it's a very affronting kind of portrayal it's still done through the medium of art and so and if, I think even to a certain extent we'll have different tolerances for that what that looks yeah. like we think of the passion of the Christ um which I think we'll talk about more in a later later part. podcast when we talk about violence in movies but the in the passion of the Christ the portrayal of his crucifixion is obviously very visceral and real in a certain sense because we're seeing it on TV in 3D and even then that's too much for me to watch. Um, that's, or at least definitely too much for me to watch and pray with. It might be an image that I can then hold and come back to later mm -hmm. when it's not there in front of me and yeah. can then gain from it. But the, like what we were saying yeah. with the Spanish flayed crosses. Yeah, but that's not, it's not that everyone has to have the same tolerance to it and that everyone has to just put up with it because that's the reality of it. All versions of it will be veiled in some way until we encounter the real crucified Christ. And so I think we were going to just actually list out a couple of the crosses that we think are really striking and have moved us to further contemplation. And so the first one was actually the one that you were describing earlier, which is the... The hand. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Eisenheim altarpiece by Matthias Grunewald. His hands almost look like another two crown of thorns. Like they're so twisted and and you can see the sweat on his body. It, it was done between 1512 and 1516. So it's 
not quite medieval, but it has quite a medieval feel to it. It's quite stylized in that way. It's not like the forms of the Italian Renaissance painters. It has that gothicness to it that's very striking. But in terms of one of those ones that is more refined, I really liked Christ Crucified by Diego Velasquez. That's from like 1800, wasn't it? Yeah. In that one, at first glance, it's not a particularly gruesome depiction. His body is quite clean of wounds. First of all, his face has this this incredible serenity to it. There's a gentleness to his face that I really love. And then when you look at the details, his hands and his feet, the blood is just pouring out of them. And as with most of his paintings, it's this dark background, this figure of Christ shining in the middle. I, I really enjoy that one. And it has a lot of similarities. This is maybe a midway between the two ones that we just described is Christ on the Cross by Leon Bannett in 1880, which has that kind of realistic form of Christ, but with the hands that are like clenched in agony, which I also think is very moving. Yeah, what you were saying about the blood pouring out of the hand. One of the things I love about the cross in my local church, well actually one cross that is the 3D crucifix which is quite a large one and it's quite prominent and even just that positioning is really useful to pray with I think mm -hmm. a lot of it is even just having the image there when we go to it yeah but also behind the altar on a giant stained glass window you've got Christ and then Mary below mm -hmm. facing out but from Christ the blood is pouring from his hands into two angels holding goblets Wow. It's a very stark reminder of the blood of Christ that's presented to us. And speaking of like perspective, I, I looked, I, I genuinely looked very hard. I will try and link to the JPEG of it online. I can't find any indicators of what this is called or what church it's in, even what country. But there's an image I really like. It's a statue in a church, but the photo itself is taken from the side on. And you can see on his back all of the scourging mark, and which you probably couldn't see a lot of from the front. And by Behind him is this beautiful green and pink marble altarpiece and it's such an elegant and beautiful church but with this very visceral depiction of Christ on the cross in the foreground which I really really love. And then the last one that I was going to touch on there's the um, Scorzelli Papal Cross which was commissioned by Paul VI which was also based on another charcoal illustration. It was the crucifixion in the Via Crucis by Servas. Servas? Not sure how to pronounce that one but the Scorzelli Papal Cross is obviously one of the crosses that I know John Paul II, Benedict XVI and Francis have all used this cross and it's so stretched out so you have Christ with his hands nailed to the cross but his body is really far down so that the arms are really like extended. The quite. arms are almost as long as he is aren't they? Yeah and he's crumpled at the bottom and so he's hunched over with these long arms extending up into this very kind of tortured and strained position. I find it very moving and affecting. Uh, I really... Yeah, it's powerful in its distortion. Yeah, which is what we were talking yeah. about, how you almost, not that, like we said, every image is gonna be veiled, so it's not the reality of it, but in terms of realistic depictions, you almost need to take it to a more expressionist state to kind of convey the anguish and torture that would have been what people who would have witnessed crucifixions would have seen because we're so far removed from it now like it wasn't that long ago when people used to go to public hangings and it wasn't that long before that where there was gibbets and all of these public displays of death and so in some ways we live a, despite people can say that we have all of this violence and we're going to talk about this as well but violence in movie and media and things like that and video games or whatever it is actually we live in a very sanitized world that doesn't see death very much even in terms of of death in hospital. Yeah. But not just execution death. Yeah. But we're very far removed from death as a concept in that not very long ago people would have died at home. Yeah. And the women of the village would have cleaned the body and prepared the body for death. And that kind of tangible that you were at home when someone died or you gathered around the bedside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that we've lost that connection with death. And so when we see what might be a somewhat more sanitised cross, there's so much disconnect between what that means that we need to see a more visceral or distorted view of it to understand how racked with pain and racked with suffering that this experience was. Yeah, so I think one of the most important things I've learned from being Catholic is that we also need to spend time contemplating that. that. It's not enough to see it and walk away or to shy away from that image because it's very easy 
to shy away from, but that we have to contemplate it. And I think we've got a lot of beautiful ways to do that as well. And I have to say, for me, the services on Good Friday, I don't want to say favourite because that sounds like it's enjoyable in a way, but I find them the most affecting services of the year. And we're talking about crucifixes, one of my favourite things, and I will say favourite because it is such an honour and it's such a beautiful thing to do, is that part at the end of the, I think it's the three o'clock service where everyone comes up and kisses the cross. Yeah. And this it's is so the, powerful. Or the unveiling of the cross at the start where they take the, the cloths off it. Just this, before the is it? Yes, it. sorry, yeah. Um, um, this is the wood yeah. of the cross. They like reveal one arm and then yeah. another arm. Yeah, it's so powerful. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Good Friday because coming back to uh, me growing up Anglican. Yes. <laughs> Good Friday was always a weird one because it felt like a day when you had to be sad or you should be like a little bit solemn at least. Yeah. And it was also often a very grey day, because yeah. we were always on Easter holidays, and it was kind of a sombre grey day. But in the Anglican Church, the services are optional. So we'd have probably gone to something on the Wednesday or the Thursday, I think. We didn't usually go to the Good Friday one, because it was in a different church that was further away. And it was always a weird way of not knowing how to celebrate it. Not celebrate it, but how market. to how to market. And I remember one particular year when my mother suggested that we all fast, mm-hmm. which is a very normal Catholic thing to do, yeah. just not have lunch. And me being so not used to fasting and so kind of off by the day that I ended up getting so grumpy that she just like, eat. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it wasn't until... I came to college and then met you guys that we started going to like an ecumenical station at the cross where we walked through a local town to yeah. different points and you marked it that way. Yeah. And even then not being used to contemplating the cross and the crowd and not always hearing the prayers and things like that, that was kind of like you did it more because it was something that, okay, this is how we can mark it. Whereas last year in our Magnificat came out a prayer on the wounds of Christ that I'd never encountered before where you were meditating on the feet of Christ and the wounds at the hand of Christ and that each one of those having a particular implication to you and to what you had done, also to how much Christ loved you. I remember, I think two years ago, I don't think it was last year, I think it was two years ago, as part of my Lent, I took up, I had booklets, so I I didn't manage to make it to a church every day, but I had booklets, so I took up saying the Stations of the Cross every day, which... It, let me tell you, it took a lot more time than I thought it was going to. Um, I, you know, I thought about it. I was like, oh, I say a rosary and that, like, you know, that doesn't take that long. But actually saying the Station of the Cross takes quite a while. But it was a really profound experience to spend that much time meditating on the cross and the, the way towards the crucifixion. I have several different booklets that give you different kind of perspectives. There's one that I really like that has the different pictures from around Jerusalem of the different points so that you can see exactly where that happened in history, which I find really affecting. So there's a lot of really beautiful different devotions around. I need to pray the stations of the cross more. Again, that's not something that Protestants pray. And it's a very... Honestly, it's 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 such a Christian thing to do, yeah. which is to break down the different steps of it's so powerful the passion. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then this year, I've got it marked in my diaries. I actually texted Matthias yesterday to check when it's on. I'm looking forward to going to Tenebrae, mm. which I've never been to before, but I've heard a lot about. Which is a series of prayers that are, I think, as far as I know, it ends with extinguishing all the candles. And then with a sound of like a loud noise to indicate the earthquake and the stones crying out. And it happens, the one that we're going to is on the Wednesday, but I think I normally associate it with Holy Thursday. So I'm not quite, I don't quite. I thought they did it for three. Okay, for the three consecutive days. That makes sense. I think that that's going to be a really interesting experience to see that kind of expression. But I love how, and like the veiling of the statues in the church and how like you said, it is a day to be sad. Everything goes into mourning, like actual mourning. I remember being a kid and not knowing what to do with myself because you kind of can't go and play on Good Friday and having that sense of like being uneasy and in between, which is entirely fitting. And then the bang of Easter Sunday comes all the more because you've had, and even Holy Saturday is such an in-between day. You're like, is it Easter? Can we do the Easter thing yet? No. no. <laughs> so 
the Good Friday services are just wonderful. I, I love all the music that goes with it. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That all of that music is so affecting and so powerful. And the other thing that I am always a big advocate is for that only time in the year we start saying parts in the gospel. It's the only time that we do this. And it's to begin with, to shout, crucify him. And again, it's to take part in the crucifixion. It's to say that I am a part of this and I have called for his crucifixion. I am a sinner. And there's that a Flannery O'Connor quote, because I always like to quote Flannery O'Connor, where she says, Christ was crucified on earth and the church is crucified in time. And the church is crucified by all of us, by her members, most particularly because she is a church of sinners. That perspective which you get in Good Friday is so affecting and so moving, I think. Yeah, I think it's also so telling that the resurrection doesn't get mentioned, which I think is where a lot of the prayers can go wrong. Like with the Stations of the Cross, Mm -hmm. you don't finish with the resurrection, you finish with Christ in the tomb. And it's supposed to catch you by surprise. Yeah. That the resurrection is such an act of divine grace and, and wisdom that we could never have seen it coming. Yeah, and then I think we can sometimes move too fast to the resurrection mm-hmm. when we're supposed to stay with the passion for a bit longer. Yeah. That said, I do actually love the crucifixes of Christ the King. Yeah, I love those too. On yeah. the cross, because it's such a tangible reminder of the only wounds that there will be in heaven are the wounds of Christ. And that there is that paradox that uh, the worst moment is also the best moment. I love how Good Friday brings everything to a halt. Yeah. And that you have to stop and think... And since I've quoted Flannery O'Connor, it is also necessary for me to quote my other favourite person to quote, which is T.S. Eliot, where he says, I said to my soul, be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God, as, in a theatre, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed. Which is very like the um, Good Saturday service done well. Yeah. Of everything dark and then the light starts coming in. Yeah. That everything has to go dark and it's in the darkness that that unexpected thing that you catastrophe happens and the light re-emerges and everything is changed and in light of this. So yeah. I hope that was a nice way to begin to reflect on, on the cross and why this is such a beautiful tradition, why it's so important and why it has such a fitting place within our Catholic faith. And while we're talking about the cross, it's a book by Archbishop Fulton Sheen, mm-hmm. or Venerable Fulton Sheen now, and it's called The Cross and the Beatitudes. It's a really short little book, it's only seven chapters, and I got it on my Kindle. I'm not sure where else you can get it, because, I mean, you turned around and said, what is this? Why have I never heard of this? But he makes a comparison between the seven words of Christ on the cross and the first seven of the Beatitudes. And I'm just going to read out how they correlate So the first is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in each of them, he talks about Christ stating the virtue at the beginning of his public ministry. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of his public ministry in the crucifixion, demonstrating the culmination of that virtue. And then, blessed are the merciful, for they shall have mercy shown to them. Can you guess which one that is? This day you shall be with me in paradise. And then, blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Son, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. I love that, yeah. And then, blessed are the poor poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall be satisfied. I know which one this is. I thirst. I thirst. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the children of God. It is finished. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That's so beautiful. There's a book that goes through the final statements of Christ on the cross and in his passion and breaks them down. But even just hearing you read them out, they're so powerful. And- I think they've also become, some of them are a little bit used sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then you put them beside the Beatitudes. Yeah. And go, boof. Yeah. Oh, and... For those who are wondering about the eighth, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. 
That's all of it. That, that is all of it, and he describes that as the confirmation declaration of all those that proceed. And so it really it shows how he takes on the sins of the world and how those are the, the virtues that you start with, and this is the way that they have to be atoned for. Yeah, this is how it finished. Yeah. And also, this is how the Beatitudes lead us to the cross and call us to participate in the crucifixion. Yeah. Because if we are called to live the Beatitudes, we are also then called to be united with the suffering of Christ in the crucifixion. So I take it you're okay with me borrowing your Kindle for a while? <laughs> Possibly. I'll have, to, I'll have to read it quick before Good Friday. Uh, that's really incredible. Well, I think we'll just round up with our usual. What are you enjoying at the moment? So I'm enjoying the book that I am reading at the moment, which is uh, George MacDonald. Another George MacDonald. Um, another George MacDonald, um, where he also talks about light and dark. They're a set of his children's stories, and this one is the one I read like earlier this week, and the other one is the one at the moment. They have, names are very odd, so I'm mm -hmm. going to give them a brief description. But one is Gertie Perchy Willie, okay. <laughs> which means kind of jack of all trades. Okay. And the other is Ranald Bannerman's Boyhood. Both mouthfuls of names, but they're both about young boys growing up and kind of growing in goodness and virtue. And the one about the jack of all trades is fascinating to me because he's learning carpentry and putting things together. And one of my favourite scenes in it is he's created a tiny little water wheel, which he then manages to create a clock from, essentially, an alarm clock, to tie it to his wrist to wake him up in the middle of the night so that he can go and look at the stars. Or just go and look at the night. Well, that's a very Phoebe thing. I can see why you like that. Yeah. And I'm going to say the book that I'm reading at the moment. By the way, can you tell that both me and Phoebe gave up a lot of our usual distraction methods, like various forms of social media and YouTube and... So rereading books. Rereading books. Well, you're going to call right. me out because I'm... Uh, you didn't give up rereading books. I gave up rereading books. <laughs> <laughs> so I am... And it's funny because I have been trying to plough through as many of the books that I want to get through as possible. And so it's meant that despite the fact that as a child I reread books compulsively, I've barely reread any books, maybe some parts of, say, Harry Potter or Narnia or Lord of the Rings, but really I haven't reread a book outside of that in many years. And I am actually rereading a book at the moment, which is very exciting. I'm reading uh, The House of Silk by Anthony Horowitz, which is a Sherlock Holmes pastiche, and it's very well done. I, I really enjoy it. I find it very exciting because so many of the Sherlock Holmes stories are short and uh, they're short stories and even the novels aren't particularly long novels. And this isn't a particularly long book, it's about 400 pages, but it's nice to feel like you get like a substantial full story with them. It's nice to dwell in the world for a bit. Exactly. And it is really well done. I really enjoy it. I think he gets the tone of the different characters really well. He gets the details of the era really well. So uh, yeah, I really enjoy it, The House of Silk. And yeah. I think that's pretty much it for us. And I think we better say goodbye. Bye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.